Hey everyone, my name is Eric Rattensberger, and you're listening to MicroSpy, a podcast that takes a closer look at the lives and work of musicians and creatives I admire. In this episode, I speak with Jack Shirley, a musician, an audio engineer, producer, and owner of the Atomic Garden Studio in Oakland, California. Jack is probably best known for his work with the band Deaf Heaven, whose sophomore album Sunbather was named Best New Music by Pitchfork. He has also recorded and produced bands like Loma Prieta, Gouge Away, Joyce Manor, and countless others, including my band, Drums Dream. He was a founding member of the punk band Comadre, and now plays guitar in Dangers. We talk about his beginnings with recording, the Oakland punk scene, work-life balance, and using ACDC's Back in Black as a sonic reference point for all his recordings. I'm more than thrilled to have him on episode three of MicroSpy. Here's my conversation with Jack Shirley. So, Jack, full disclosure. Yes. I've got your Wikipedia page open right now. <laughs> and besides the dozens of bands that you have recorded and or produced, I couldn't help but notice one thing. Oh, Do you no. have any idea of what that's going to be? I haven't seen this page, so I don't know. Do you know that you have an AKA? Oh, is it is it uh is it Flacco? <laughs> Nah, man. It's, it's a different Grammy one? Jack. Oh, it's Grammy, Grammy Jack. Jack. Oh, yeah, right. So there's there's a couple of like you know one person only nicknames that I have, or like one only one person calls me something. And yeah, Jeff Rosenstock got me the Grammy Jack one when we were doing his or we did a live album in New York, and it was at the Bowery Ballroom. We did like four days in a row, and I was engineering, and it was the weekend of the Grammys, so it kept coming up on stage in the middle of the set. And I think on the actual album, there is, there is, there, the crowd is chanting Grammy Jack at some point, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, but So this is like a real thing. This is not a joke. I mean, it's, it's a real thing. It's a real thing that lasted for like a couple of days and I guess is now immortalized on, a, on an album. Uh, but like, I haven't heard it outside of that, that one weekend other than what you're telling me right now. Yeah, I mean, look, this this was my attempt just just to do like a little bit of reconnaissance. It's Not trouble. like I really needed to check your Wikipedia, but I'm glad I did. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh man, I hope there's nothing else on there that's, uh, you know. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, well, let's see here. Where did all this start for you, as far as your first official, the the beginning of your relationship with recording and how it kind of all got started. The very first inklings of of my interest in this whole kind of thing was just trying to make a demo for my high school band that I was in and in doing it in the most uninformed DIY fashion possible, essentially, where like we strung together a couple of like PA mixers that we had and like basically did a live to two track recording onto like a cassette deck because I didn't even have a four track. Like it wasn't even, you know what I mean? Like I didn't know anybody that recorded. I didn't know, you know, like I was like, well, there's no way we'd have the capability of overdubbing in the situation that we're in. So like, let's just record it hundred percent live. And so we did. And it turns out live to two track is like a super big boy way to record that like real, like old school diehard types do where, where you're essentially the recording is happening live. The musicians are playing live and like 100% of the recording is happening at once. And then the mixer is actually mixing the recording at the same time and printing it only to the stereo final mix. Anyway, we're getting into the weeds already, but I dig it. When you started recording your band in high school out of mm. a DIY necessity, if you will, did you find that there was something that resonated with you in the in the process like did, did something light you up when figuring out the process it did absolutely i definitely was a musician first and 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 was that was like if, if i had to weigh the two things like i was a musician much longer than i was an engineer in terms of like uh worth <laughs> and then i think they've now shifted the opposite direction in the last like i don't know 10 years i guess where now i'm like I'm a musician occasionally on the side, but I'm much better at being an engineer now. But like, obviously, the two things cross over every day. Tell me about your your first entry point to punk rock. Um, I grew up skateboarding, and I was like a pretty avid skateboarder in you know my early teens. 
and I was part of that community and that was like that was my whole life was skateboarding and everything that came along with it so like but that meant that in like 92 when I was 11 or you know uh and and go into 12 or whatever uh we were already being exposed to like punk music because it was in the skate videos that we watched every day all day you know on on a loop so I guess that was the seed planted and then middle school into high school, whatever, like, you know of certain music, but you don't really understand what it all is. Like, you know, we listen to Operation Ivy and Green Day and No Effects and Rancid and all that stuff because those were those were songs in the skate videos that we liked. But we also listened to Pearl Jam and, you know, Soundgarden and whatever else and, like, didn't really, like, delineate, or you know? And so I think the turning point was there was a raffle at our skate shop when I was, like, I think I was 14 or 15, for like it was the second warp tour <laughs> and uh and so i think that was 96 and so i was 15 i would have been 15 so um but and i and i'm pretty sure i never asked him but the guy that owned the shop he was kind of like a, he was a mentor for a bunch of of us when we were younger um i think he rigged this raffle so me and my two friends that played music together would get free tickets to go to this warp tour because we'd never been to like anything resembling a punk show at that point and so we went and almost and like that day it was the first time seeing that kind of music happen. And it was like, oh, shit, like we need to. OK, everybody stop the Pearl Jam covers like immediately. Uh, it's time to like to to reformulate this whole thing. So um, so I guess that's that's when it was. And then and then that brings us to high school and then like whatever. Um, but and, and yeah, we did some DIY recordings. I didn't get back to recording, though, until I was like in my early 20s for various reasons. It's a very similar trajectory as as mine, and I th- I think for a lot of us there's there's a real trend between the correlation of of punk rock and skateboarding culture. Absolutely, you know they just kind of go hand in hand, and for the very reason <clears throat> that you pointed out with the discovery of music through skate videos, you know, and I too like had a really terrible band in, in high school. It was called Shoplifter. Oh my god, it was Hell the yeah. worst, but that's kind of where it all started for me where i was just getting into punk rock and hardcore started this band started going to shows um in connecticut where i grew up and and then i was watching skate videos at the same time so the exposure i was getting to the local punk rock and hardcore bands plus watching the skate videos that were playing those bands like bad religion operation ivy um husker do like mm-hmm. oh my god just just the the list goes on well and, and outside of that even like all the stuff that wasn't punk music like i feel like skateboarding shaped my entire musical taste just in in like Same. in general because it was yeah it was cool you got exposed to to stuff that you wouldn't hear on the radio, but then there was stuff that like, or I guess you did hear that stuff on the radio then, but you know, that, that wouldn't have been accessible. And then, but you're also, I remember the first time I ever heard like a Blondie song, uh, it was the tide is high and it was in uh four and one video uh, magazine number six. And <laughs> it was, was one of the first videos I think I ever uh, actually bought for myself. But I remember hearing that song going like, what the hell is this? This is just like this weird, like uh, mariachi thing with like this girl singing and like, and it was it seemed kind of whack at first, but then the hundredth time that you hear it because you watch this video nonstop, it's like, damn, this song is good. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, I don't know. It's it's a beautiful thing the way that all works. It's funny, when I was younger, I actually was wondering if those songs were they were supposed to be ironic or something. But then you realize <laughs> as you get older that like, you know, the people cutting these videos actually had really good really good taste in music. When you started Comadre mm-hmm. and and sort of how how things started taking shape at that point, you know, becoming more involved in punk rock and DIY hardcore. What was your life like as a recording engineer at that point? Or was that still sort of in the, the beginning stages of it all? That was actually it, those things happened almost at the same time. So like I, I got my um, the band that so my brother and I. Uh, were in Camadre together and we we had also been in a handful of other bands together before that from again from high school into like my uh Camadre started in 2004 
Um, so I would have been 23 at that point. So uh, my brother's four years younger. But yeah, I mean, so we've been playing in bands for, I don't know, whatever, six or eight years already. And yeah, uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, yeah. So the band the band before Commodore was called One Zone Ruin, my brother and I. Uh, it was a three piece. And then Kenny and Juan, who were the other the other pair of brothers in um, in Comadre, they also had a band at the same time in the same area. And both of our bands kind of ended, and then we formed this new band. But I started engineering because we were working on a record for the that previous band, and um, we were kind of, you know a friend of mine was helping me record some of it. Uh, our the drummer in the band at the time had just gotten a Pro Tools system, and he was kind of learning how to work that. And and then I got a, a computer set up and a little Pro Tools rig, like a, the simplest form you could you could have it in. And while we're mixing this record, kind of very DIY again, and none of us really knew what we were doing. I kind of felt like, hey, I need to try to do this myself I, because I didn't like how it was going. It was getting too like um, t- everything was sounding too like polished and overdone, and I wanted it to be more stripped down and simple. So, so that was like August or uh, or so of two thousand three, and it was just like, well, I'm an engineer now. Like, I absolutely love this. I, I, so basically, I was given the multi track of the album that we had been working on, and knowing nothing about recording. I sat down with the software and started basically trial and erroring my way to mixing this record because I knew the way I wanted it to sound. I just I had no idea what went into making it sound that way. And the pursuit of doing that, by the time I was done, I was well-versed enough in the in the software to just do some basic recording and basic editing and mixing that I was I, I was immediately just like, everybody come over and start recording, like, you know, to my friends. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there wasn't really anybody... And I'm from the, the the San Francisco Peninsula, which is like pretty much right between San Francisco and San Jose, on the west side of the of the San Francisco Bay. And that area, like Redwood City, San Mateo, Palo Alto, was full of kids at that point making music and and some amazing bands, Half Moon Bay. I'm sure you you know Funeral Diner and Spaz uh, was out, out of that area, like ton, tons of tons of bands. So. It was, and were these bands were these bands that you were you were seeing frequently? Like, was was were there always shows going on in that area at yeah, the time? Yeah, there were there were a lot of shows happening and a lot of people involved. And and that's honestly, I, I credit that to like to how I was able to make a living doing this. It's like because that initial jump off um, of like of hey, I'm doing really affordable recordings out of my parents' house. Uh, who wants to come over and make a record? And it was so many people and so many friends were involved in so much of the same thing. Uh, and there wasn't really much in terms of like uh, affordable recording and DIY small setups, uh, at least that any of us knew about. And so I think it was just a no-brainer for a lot of people. It was like, oh, Jack's recording. Let's go record. It's a, It was a crazy time, too. That was That was right when uh, software like Pro Tools and stuff like that was becoming very accessible to just the average person. And it was this time where I think a lot of bigger studios started to kind of fold down a bit because that model of like having a giant infrastructure and a staff and like all that stuff was up against this this other this completely different idea that like, oh, I can actually just make a record at my house. And like, you know, obviously the result is going to be different. But for punk kids who don't have any money or whatever, um, it's a perfectly adequate substitute and at that time, personally, uh, my like uh, interactions with other with recording engineers had not been terribly positive at that point. You know, where you're dealing with people who are like, um, they're either real old school, like old men, who, who or they're like young guys who don't get what you're doing at all, and they all have the same thing to say, which is like, oh no no, you can't do that, you can't do that like that, and and it's kind of like that. That was when it it kind of dawned on me, like I have to get this guy out of the equation this person that's kind of just trying to stand in between me and this very simple goal that I have of just like making some, you know, record, you know, uh, documenting this music that we're making without any like frills or like whatever, or just wanting to do something a certain way. I don't know. Yeah. You don't like, you know, obstacles are bad when it comes to that sort of thing. So it's just like, it's like, get this guy out of here and let's just make this fucking record. (laughs) The studio started mostly digital and now is mostly analog, and that came from years and years of uh, kind of chasing down the sound that I was 
going for hearing and like other recordings and things like that. I mean, that must be a, a really cool aspect of having your own recording studio where you can kind of tailor the equipment mix based on the sound that you want to achieve or sort of like the, the, the base, the baseline sound for, for your recording style. And that's been a journey for sure, because since I've, that's the other thing, because I I started independently and I've, I've always only had my own place. I've worked at other spots here and there over the years, but when you mostly have your own place, if you want to try stuff, you kind of have to buy it and own it for a little while and like really, you know, dig in versus, you know, if you're, if you get to, if you're working at different studios all the time, you get to try different equipment, you kind of see how it feels and whatever, and like the results that you get. But so I did go through a lot of years of like, buy a bunch of stuff, try it, sell it, get more stuff with the money from that, you know, try that, whatever. And eventually you end up in a place where you're, yeah, like you said, where you've tailored it to this, to the specifics of, of like what you're trying to achieve. And, and it right now, actually more than ever, I'm feeling super good about the setup that I've got. And, and I haven't made any large changes in, in some years uh, other than the studio itself. Speaking of um, personal taste and, and, and all that, yeah. uh, what have you been listening to lately? I got turned on to a couple things. I'm opening Spotify right now so I can scroll around for you. I'll tell you what I haven't been listening to is a lot of heavy music because Same. work is well, yeah, work is loud a lot of the time. So like I, I tend to uh, chill it out a little bit more, just like what Sean was talking about. You know, just like some peace and quiet or just a different angle when it's time to recreationally listen. But yeah, let's see. Uh, I got turned on to uh, Anderson Pack. I think that's how you pronounce mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. I've been really liking that stuff a lot. I've been, I was catching up on the Thin Lizzy uh, discography. Nice. <laughs> I listened to a lot of Tom Waits, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Hop Along, bands like that. There's a song called How Simple on youtube you can go watch it and it's super good everybody go listen to hop along you heard the man go listen to hop along <laughs> please <laughs> you gotta you gotta switch gears a little bit you know just after after a while your your ears kind of they kind of get numb well sean had a really good point where he was talking about how everything in in life now feels like it's just like all up in your face maybe with like social media or whatever um, it's very true, you know. We're all inundated with stuff, yeah. noise, mm-hmm. um, messaging, the whole the whole deal. And so, when it comes to music, yeah. I mean, I mean, I already touched on this with Sean, but for me, like like artistically and creatively, I I love playing loud and heavy, aggressive music. But yeah, it's so. not really my go to as far as something I would put on the record player and. Uh, you know, Sean's other good point was that it's like heavy music is like it's like foreground music, you know. That's exactly right. Yeah, you don't you don't just put it on the background, ignore it. There's a level of presence that's required in order to fully appreciate and enjoy a heavy record, you know. Mm-hmm. It like requires the listener's participation more than just throwing it on and then like doing some dishes. It's absolutely true. The other thing uh, that I think comes back to, I, I, I wouldn't speak for anybody else necessarily, but like for me personally, the kind of music that I've played, like Comadre and uh, whatever else, uh, Dangers and stuff, it's like, it's 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 music that I'm suited for as a musician, uh, where it's like, yeah, I could be playing some of this like chiller indie rock type stuff, but like nobody needs to hear that. You know, <laughs> like there's a, I think there's a famous... Um, it might have been like Miles Davis or somebody had a quote like that where it was like, it was like, yeah, I could play whatever. It was, it was either a different instrument or a different style of music. But it's like, but nobody really wants to hear that. You know, like uh, it's something I might do in private, <laughs> you know, but it's not for an audience. There, there's another Miles Davis quote that I, I wish I knew uh, offhand, but he essentially was saying that, you know, 80 percent of it is all about the feel of the motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know so, so so it's like 20 20 percent technical yeah. ability then an 80 percent is Absolutely. about the feel and i think that that's yeah. really applicable to punk rock music Hell because yeah. it's not about how well you play your instrument and it's also not about no, how not well you you're in time and all that i mean and this is actually yeah. something that i spoke to alexis about from daughters where he was saying like anybody can tune a guitar 
And once you get right. your tones down, it's like, okay, great. But then there's this whole other aspect of the experience of the music, um, especially yeah. in a live context, right? Mm -hmm. And that's actually something that that that's it's making me think about sort of the 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 difference between a recorded album and the experience one has when they experience it live. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think about that when you're recording, like uh, in terms of the the similarities or or complete differences between sure. a, re a recording versus the songs being played live? Absolutely. I mean, there's um, there's there's different ways of approaching it. There's some, you know, there's and and when I first started, I was very much a purist of like, no, this is what it's like when we play it. I don't want to do anything extra. Uh, I want it to be uh, this stripped down version. You know, there's one guitar in the band. Like there should only be one guitar on the re on the <laughs> record. Uh, now, now I would never. Uh, well, now you I want to put six guitars on the record. <laughs> well, I, I at least want two. I have, and, and sometimes I have a hard time selling that to people. But um, but it's like it's really just like come on, because now I'm I'm less about the literal. It's got to be live feel, and more about like the feeling that you that you get when you listen to it needs to match up with how it feels when you see it live and that could mean anything you know like i want when i hit play for when, when it when the when the first thing hits you like i want it to be like ooh shit like that's that feels live you know as an engineer like how how do you go about deciphering that or or determining what has to happen in order to achieve that a lot of it is just like just the feel or whatever the instinct or the intuition or like or you know the feeling you get when the thing hits and that could be whatever making the bass drum have a certain amount of weight to it or like making sure that the you know i like drums loud so you know making sure the drums are loud because that's where all the pulse is and where all the whatever but you also you know like making it feel like it's coming at you and like things feel forward you know or whatever it might be to to match the the um but of course it's different in every situation too you know, it depends on the band. So I do go see a lot of bands live, uh, especially bands that I work with. I like to see them live before we record. I like to see them live after we record because now I know all the songs. So, uh, you know, and, and while I'll be watching a band and I'll kind of file away like, oh, this feels a certain way for this band. And then and then at least have it in mind when you're working on the record. Yeah, for sure. Um, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts on click tracks. Huh. I'm not a fan personally. I I, uh, I discourage them almost all the time. Um, Why? Because, in my experience, a song, most of the time, wants to have some ebb and flow to it. And I, I should say also that most of the recording I do is is a band recording live together. So. It, it's one thing, I guess, if you're doing everything one piece at a time, which I hate doing because uh, it's torturous to me. And I feel like it doesn't lend itself to the vibe. Same with the click. Like, I don't want to have a song that literally doesn't change tempo for the entire song. Like, the chorus might need to feel like it leans forward a little bit and, like, gets a little faster because it's exciting. You know, and the players are more exciting playing or excited playing it. Or maybe this quiet bridge part, like drags a little bit because like that's just the feel of it you know and i've had bands go the tempo map route which is a tempo map is just a click track that changes tempo um based on the parts of the song and even then it doesn't always work out very well you know like in the end you're like ah it feels kind of robotic or like uh we didn't you know it feels it, the whole thing feels too slow now and like there's something to be said about the excitement of the moment of like all right we're gonna count off and we're just gonna play right now uh and and it's gonna and we're gonna we're going to make it work, you know? I don't know. I've had, in my experience, in, in the years of doing it, the I've had much, much more satisfaction listening back to things when there's not a click track. And and watching bands struggle with a click track, which is how most of them do. <laughs> uh, even even people who have, like, pr practiced to a click in preparation for the right. record, when, it, when it, the time comes, you find out that, like, either either they've been fighting the click the whole time and you can hear it in the way they play... Or it's it's restraining them in that like oh yeah like this part whatever you know like you listen to the song it's like oh this part feels slow but it's like well it's the same tempo as the previous part and but who cares you know <laughs> um, right so it's almost more of an obstacle or at least something that gets in the yeah. way of the the flow of organic creativity and feel and uh, what I what I'm gathering from what we're saying it's like 
feel is I, I mean feel is a really big part of of any successful recording, right? Um, Absolutely. It's about capturing it. It's and, the whole and, thing. Yeah, it's about capturing that in the most organic way. I think there's a lot of things be, be, besides a click that can get in the way of that, but but for sure, like from a technical standpoint, and I know what you mean. Like if there's a song that's on a click and and the verse sounds okay, but for some reason the chorus just sounds it, it doesn't lift even though it's it's on the right. grid it, it, it doesn't have right. that organic lift you know i mean you mm-hmm. can maybe up at a db or something and right. kind of have this like fake intensity applied to it somehow from a technical standpoint but and there's and there's plenty of instances where there's a song that should just bang really hard at the same tempo the whole time and in that kind of case like absolutely use a click track you know like make sure it's real solid and it's got that feel to it and there are some players that are expert players where they they can use the click track merely as a suggestion or they use it they know when to lock onto it they know when to not like they can hang back yeah they can hang back yeah in front of it or be right on it right and that's that's another important thing i guess to like to mention is that the drummer is the only person who should hear the click track i've 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 been in situations there was a, there was a bunch of um, discussion when we were setting the studio up about how we would do headphone mixes because it's very common these days in bigger studios where everybody's got a little mixer and they make their own headphone mix, which I'm not a fan of because I've been in situations where when everybody's got their own control, you realize at the end of the day that the bass player's been listening to the click all day long, like super loud in his headphones, and and it's like, well, shouldn't you, you should be following this this guy right here? He's playing the drums, you know, or or this gal or whatever. And yeah, I like being the person who says like, oh no, actually you don't get to have that in your headphones <laughs> because cause that's not, that's just not the right move. It'd be hard enough to have a drummer that isn't necessarily that versed in playing to a click. I mean, then if you multiply that by four or five times, you're right. just going to get a shit performance. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's a, every, every situation is different. I've had, I mean, just recently a band came in they were very adamant about recording to the click. And in those situations, again, if I was a producer, I'd say absolutely not. You're a punk band. You don't record to a click. Just play your songs. But I'm ultimately here to, like, get these people to the end in the best way that they, you know, that we can together. So, like, if they're adamant about it, I'm like, amen, let's do it. You know, like, this is your record. This is your band. Like, I'm not going to make you do something you don't want to do. So... We started, we recorded the click. It sounded bad. Like you could, they were, the, the drummer was fighting the click the whole time. You could hear him trying to speed up and then slowing down and then whatever, this or that or the other thing. And it was like, dude, let's, uh, let's ditch this thing. And, and uh, the drummer in particular had a hard time. He didn't have a hard time not playing to the click. In fact, he played much better without it, but he had a hard time with the idea of not playing to mm. a click because he thought that his timing was going to be too inconsistent, which it absolutely wasn't. It was totally 100% acceptable and and he was completely in his head yeah absolutely it, or like or to him and to a lot of people it's like oh we're in a we're in the studio we're making a we're in a quote real studio we're making a quote real record it has to be done a certain way for it to be like professional or whatever you want to call it which is the same thing i get oftentimes where people i think they think that recording a band live is like somehow not pro or something because for the same kind of reasons like oh aren't you supposed to do everything one thing at a time so everything can be like perfect it's like well no you're not supposed right. to do not that. necessarily uh, it, not for me yeah like like in my experience no you're not supposed to do that because it not only does it take super fucking long but everybody's like super in their head about their own parts and and whatever and when you can you know it's like there's so many reasons to not do it that way and that's a big that that is where i again I always preface it with like, hey, listen, I'll do anything you want, but listen to this for a second. Like, I've had much better results doing it this way, and here's why. But And I have turned down records because, you know, like a metal band wanted to record everything to a click and time correct it and then track everything one thing at a time and like get very meticulous about everything. And it's like, man, that sounds like fucking torture to me. And that's just not, that's just not how I make records. You know, I, I don't have the, I don't have the wherewithal to do that. Yeah, I mean, well said. What I love is how clear you are in having that stance, because it has has a lot to do with how you operate. And you know, you have to be, you have to, you have to like listen to yourself too, right? It's like, of course, yeah, you're in business and you want to fill your calendar, but 
you're going to be that sure. much more miserable if you're filling your calendar with projects that go against the grain of, of your philosophy and recording and absolutely and, and that that stuff and those those um techniques often bring certain styles of music which which i don't really care for you know what i mean uh as a listener so it's like and and not to say that i only work on stuff that i like i mean like there's plenty of stuff that's like not my personal taste but it gets further and further away you know with with some of those like hyper production techniques and and that I'm really glad that when I first started, because like in the early 2000s, that kind of thing was like pretty rampant. Hyperproduction is what it was, is the what we we call That's it. That's when everyone discovered quantizing, right, and getting everything right. on the grid. Sample replacement. Oh man, yeah. I mean, yeah, all all of it. Like you know, it's the click tracks, the time correction, pitch correction, sample replacement, like stuff that I I shy away from most of the time. And that, that's that's something that. That's one of the most common phone calls I have actually is with people that are calling because they want to book time because they like some records that I've worked on. And then we start talking about process and I tell them how the, rec the records that they like were made. And the, the usual response is, you're blowing my mind right now, man. <laughs> because, because of how, um, how simple and organic and straightforward the process is and how fast it usually goes. I think people just expect that like, oh, well, this record was popular and it sounds a certain way. It must have been done like this. Right. But that, like a band like Def Heaven is, is an example I often give uh, just because it's a kind of extreme example. But like some of their songs are 10 minutes long and some of the songs on those records are the literal first take of the band. It's live, live to, to tape, no click track. It's the first take of a 10-minute song. They play it all the way through. There might be like a little edit here and there, like a drum fill where we like, oh, oh we got to scoot this one hit or something. Or, or, or you know, and, and guitar players and bass players always have to punch in things here and there. But like at the core, that take just happened super organically in the studio. And that's the thing that I try to tell people is like, you think maybe that's part of what you like about the recording? You know, is it like it's it, it has a certain feel to it, like like what you were saying. And I think people have a hard time with that. And they get scared by the idea of like, wait, we got to just come in and like play it? And like, that's how it's going to get recorded, you know? But I don't know. You did it. How was it for you? For me? Yeah. Well, I mean, for us, it was an interesting situation because we hadn't been in the studio for almost 18 years. So <laughs> to, to like... I mean, I don't think we had any illusions about what was going to take place in the studio because I think we are on the same page from the get-go, um, us and, and you. Sure. And, but I, <clears throat> I totally understand how there are people out there who think that, okay, I'm going to book time uh, to record in a studio. They almost build up this thing in their mind that, like, the studio is going to, like concoct this like magic potion to put on their songs and make it a certain way even though at the end of the day yeah. it comes down to the people behind their instruments and how well they play their songs and not just how well they play but it's almost like it's almost like a, a meditation you have to go into in terms of not being distracted by you know the beautiful wood wood paneled walls and the fancy microphones and all that i think a lot of people just right. get in their heads about the context in which they're recording you know especially punk rock bands i mean the one thing that i've made note of um when we got in the studio with you was and i mean i've i've made records in in nice studios before with other bands but i i think that when you're coming from a place when the recordings re were really nothing but like a four track and a couple of shitty mics. I think to to be in a studio like yours, it's kind of like, whoa, this is super fucking legit. And it's also like a legit person behind the board who like gets it and knows where this music comes from. And I think that actually is what I was so excited about to work with you was the fact that you're you're such a pro and you have such a beautiful studio and you know how to utilize all the equipment because it's 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 all of your curation. And, uh, you know, it's like that is like a, a double whammy. And but I had no illusions about what we were going to come out with. I just knew that I loved 
the work that you did prior, and we knew that we were in good hands. And you know, above and beyond the the sonic output of the record, um, and I think I said this to Sean again. I love how we we keep referencing my conversation with Sean, but I love Sean. He's the best. Um, but we felt really safe recording with you because we felt like we weren't being judged. We felt like we didn't have any kind of pressure coming from you. We had we had good pressure and encouragement, but it wasn't like a sure. thing that created friction between the, the execution of the songs and what we were trying to achieve, you know? Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's, yeah. There And there's, uh, it's weird because I hear stories about engineers who like pointedly do the opposite of that because I think it's going to get results. I know who um, you're thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> where they're like, they're like shitty to the bands or something. Right. Like, and I don't know. I know exactly who you're thinking of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's like, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I, I could, I can't even imagine a world where I'm like, where I'm like rude to the people that are, <laughs> that are in here. And, and, like, and borderline offensive from what I understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. there's a fine line there. Right. And like, yeah. That's almost like something you'd see in like a, a mockery of a, a producer. Well, this is another thing that I've I've um, kind of uh, this idea that I've explored of like so much of the well, at least for the band. So like you as a listener, you can hear the record and be like, oh, man, this record's great. Uh, a lot of times I talk to bands and I ask them like, oh, hey, what do you want to do different from your last record? And and a lot of times people are like, man, I fucking hate that record. <laughs> and and a lot of it isn't about how it sounds. It's about the the feeling that they have when they think about the process. And it was, you know, it could have been like, oh, man, that the dude that recorded us was such a piece of shit. And like or like or we oh, we totally butted heads about this or that. And they walk away with this bad taste in their mouth, no matter how successful the record might have been it might have been great performances might sound great might you know might have been well received but so much of the like aftertaste is about is just about like the vibe in the studio while it's all happening that to me like because i'm nice to people um <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i and i feel like i'm here to like help people achieve this goal they have um it it kind of like i do put a lot of pressure on myself to make things sound a certain way but but in but in some ways it's like that pressure uh, is relieved a bit because like I know these people are going to have a good feeling about this even if it doesn't come out 110% of the fidelity that I'm shooting for or whatever um, you know what I mean at the end of the day I think the end result is to capture the best version of whatever it is that the band or artist is doing and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to what you were saying earlier about the simplicity of say you know the, the process of recording Deaf Heaven's Sunbather, where mm -hmm. they went in and they set up and they just played. Like, the, it wasn't overthought. And I think when a band comes into a studio and sets up and the right person is steering the ship, meaning mm -hmm. someone like you, that creates an environment for the the music to thrive, right? And even though, of course, in your world where you're trying to achieve, like, the greatest amount of, like you know, the highest quality of fidelity or, or I, I feel like an idiot even saying fidelity. I'm, I'm so like technically, uh, I mean, even I, even I used it as like a placeholder word or, you know, sonics or whatever you want to call it, the, the sound versus the, versus the material. Right. Like I think a prime example is, um, I think specifically of the old records I discovered when I was much younger that really changed my life as a, as a young punk rock kid. You know, these recordings were definitely done on nothing more than a boombox or a four-track um, at best. Yeah. And I'm thinking of bands like Honeywell or, um, you know, Portraits of Past is one that, that, that you're familiar with. Um, yeah, sure. Especially being a Half Moon Bay band, and you know, I know you're friends with, with some of them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that LP that they put out on Abolition, which I probably talk about every single time uh, <laughs> I have a chance to, but sonically, the record... It's not technically a, a sonically um, right. kick-ass record, but it does not matter because that's a record that I can put on today and I could still be profoundly affected by. You know, I could listen to the opening track and still be mesmerized and have that visceral connection with the record. You know what? That's that's the. That's one of the things, actually. I, I call it trying to achieve a timeless quality 
in the recordings that that's like always on my mind of like you know uh, we joke often because this one uh, because acdc back in black is one of my like go-to <laughs> go-to references for like sonic balance but that might have been my favorite part of our recording process <laughs> is when hearing you compared that. <laughs> our lp to acd <laughs> acdc <laughs> So I'm like, wow, we're in the big time now. Well, so I have t- let me tell you two things real quick about this uh, or about that. <laughs> Number one is having a timeless quality to the recording for me. Yeah, it's like people often will want to do stuff that, that to me is it's like, oh, this is going to feel dated. Like you're going to listen to this in 10 years and it's going to be like, ooh, that recording's from whatever the late 2000s or, or whatever it might be, because everybody was doing this thing then. And I try to avoid that stuff as much as I can. Because I want to be able to like, because in the case of like Back in Black, it was 1980. And I listened to that record today, 40 years later, and it sounds like it was recorded today at the best possible way that you would want to make a record. And it's, you know what I mean? There's like, and, that, and that's the thing where it's like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do some things, you know, some stylistic things and make, make things sound interesting a certain way. But like, but I want you to be able to listen to it in 20 years or 10 years and not cringe when you hear what we did. You know what I mean? I love that. And it's so true. I mean, that that particular recording is, uh, I mean, you just can't fuck it's with it. It's hard to fuck with. And it's crazy when you, it's, it's crazy when you say 40 how, years. Yeah, how crazy is that? God. So they did that in 1980, 40 years ago, with no computers or any of that shit. And like, it seriously sounds so incredibly well balanced and like, in terms of like a rock record. And, and uh, it's unfair to just single this one out because... There's like, I was just telling somebody this the other day, I have, there's like 10 records in my, or, you know, 10 different recordings in my references folder that sound exactly like it. You know, there's like this one Smoking Pope's record that sounds just like it. There's like a, you know, whatever, like there's, there's all, all sorts of, oh, I just bumped my microphone. Um, there's all sorts of, uh, of records that have kind of fit into that same like sonic architecture or whatever you want to call it, um, balance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that one just holds up so well. And um, so here's the extra part I want to tell you. So on my console... There's a there's this there's one of those strips where you can choose the source of what you're hearing. And so like, you know, it's what comes out of the monitors, basically. So, you know, one button plays back the stereo output of the console. There's another button where like the main main output of Pro Tools plays. Uh, There's another one where like my computer audio comes out. So, like you know, you select this based on what you need to hear in that moment. Um, I just added an extra one. That's literally my old phone in the other room looping the chorus of, of Back in Black like 24 hours a day at, at the same exact volume as everything else that I'm playing back. So at any moment, I can just press this button on my console and Back in Black plays. Um, and it's fucking <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so... Uh, Oh my god, man, you're fucking <laughs> because, crazy. Because sometimes, because sometimes you just need. Uh, it's like I, I, I go back to. Quick reference. We need reference, of course. <laughs> like I think about. So I, I have a. I have an education in art, in illustration, and like one of the th- one of the biggest things that they teach you is you have to have good reference, and it's a common misconception that artists, you know, somebody paints a picture of a whatever you know, whatever, anything, say anything, a, a bridge or a frog or whatever, you know, like you look at the finished thing, you're like, man, that's a really good artist. Look at how well they drew that bridge. It's like, well, did any, like there's a picture of the bridge right next to the painting while they're working on it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like they're not, they're not just like imagining a bridge they once saw and, dra- and drawing some beautiful landscape. Like they're looking at a photograph and then they're painting the photograph. So like I, I approach this stuff the same way where it's like, okay, we might be working on something and thinking like, man, we got this. This thing sounds, it sounds clear. It sounds full. It's like, it's its like, you know, it's not muddy. It's not harsh. It feels awesome. And then you throw it up against uh, something else that's like out in the world. Like, oh, how's this going to sound on Spotify next to some other recording? And it's like, oh, shit, we don't have it at all. So it's good. It's really good to have a palate cleanser of like, and, and a reference at, at all times when you're working on stuff, just to know, even if you, even if it means you're going to completely go the opposite direction, it's just good to have some kind of point of reference, you know? It's so smart, and I think it's so great how you actually take sort of your formal training uh, in in art, and how you can apply that to the same concept, and how you can you construct a record or or record. Yeah, there's a, song. a ton of uh, a ton of uh, similarities in, in art and and pr- art production, music production, like photography. There's like yeah, it's it's crazy how how crossed over they all are. 
I, I think it's amazing that you have that now on your console. <laughs> it's right there. On command, yeah. ACDC. It's brilliant. And I, I tried I tried with the whole song, and it didn't work. I kept going to it in places where it's like, oh, I, I got to wait for the for it to get loud again. And so now it's now it's just looping the, the chorus over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> ACDC would be proud. Yeah, I guess they would. Or at least flattered, maybe. Sure. If... Or who knows? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I like how we really got in a groove where we are we were able to kind of interweave technical stuff with um with the actual capturing of creativity and doing the things to not convolute that process but to more so just g- give it like the 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 widest door or window to go through and to successfully capture. What are you excited about for the coming year in terms of projects, work, personal uh, endeavors? Mm. What what's what's on the calendar for let's, Jack Shirley? Let's look. Let's, let's literally look at the calendar. <laughs> That's a thing I um, often tell people. People are like, "Oh, what are you working on right now?" And I, I usually don't know because I'm working on like ten things at once, and then like I don't know who's coming in next because I'm I'm because that got booked like four five months ago. It seems like you're really good at compartmentalizing. Yeah. Um, your your life in a way yeah you, you're you're very disciplined in having slotted parts of the day for yeah. specific things i had to i had to do that if you're going to work six or seven days a week you can't work 14 hours a day you know Mm-mm. that's when i when i instated the like pretty hard 10 to 2 or 10 to 6 work day it's it's been a beautiful thing because even though you schedule months out you can always like make plans at night or like go to a show tonight. I'm going to a show, you know, or I'm going to have dinner with a friend or whatever. Um, so it's so important. It's very important. Yeah. Or to have a, you know, I have a partner who's like extremely, she's put up with so much shit having, mm-hmm. having to do with my profession. We lived in a warehouse for a lot of years, you know, that wasn't, didn't have proper heating or soundproofing or, whatever you know we weren't it wasn't legal for us to live there so we had to kind of like keep it keep you know every you're always kind of looking over your shoulder and 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 all that shit the windows didn't open you know like uh things like that because it was an office space you know and so i feel like it's easy it's really easy to get caught up in your work and like stay in all night just go at it you know and like because it's fun and it's rewarding and all that shit but then it's like oh wait i i have like there's another person in my life that like i need to uh that i need to make time for so like that's another big thing it's like i can't i don't take a lot of days off but like yeah it's important to not just be in here forever all right i have the calendar open so the thing i'm most excited about for 2020 thus far um because i'm only into like we're only a little ways into may at this point uh schedule wise is in like what day is it in one in less than a month um we're doing the new jeff rosenstock record which gets me so excited because working with jeff has been one of the most beautiful things that's happened to my uh recording life so so jeff was in a band called bomb the music industry um that's from new york and then when they stopped, he went just uh, as solo, you know, where he's it's just under his name, um, although they play under a different name sometime. But uh, it's kind of semantics anyway. And does he have a full band yes. now or is he recording? solo? No, he, as he well? records uh, full band. Um, and so it's it's a, and it's a lot of the same people have been working with him for years on various projects. And so it's in uh, the crew is amazing. Um, so Jeff writes incredibly uh beautiful and layered and like heavy indie rock type music it's like kind of poppy indie rock stuff um and he's got like a composer's brain and so it's a lot a lot of times it's pretty heavily layered there's all sorts of cool like alternate instrumentation um on the records and jeff's also a producer uh, of other people's music so I've, I've worked with him on his own records i've worked with him on other people's records and it's it's never uh disappointed it's always been like very rewarding entertaining he's kind of a he's a crazy dude and so he's just fun to be around but anyway we're doing two weeks next month and so i'm really excited about that and he's he's never recorded at the new studio and so that's going to be even better so we've done the last uh oof, we've done like 10 records together at this point and it's it's always been cool. So um, 
that's the thing I'm most excited about right now. I'll tell you that. Just hearing you describe what he does, mm-hmm. um, it reminds me of this artist I've been listening to quite a bit, uh, probably the past half year. But have you heard of Andy Schaff? No, I, I haven't. I feel like anytime I listen to his music, it makes me feel like I'm in a in a film. Oh, that's it's awesome! Like very, it's very score like in a almost way. like a like, like a, a Sufjan Stevens kind of thing. Exactly. Well, yeah, very. That's actually who I was listening to quite a bit as oh, well. Cool. That's actually who who I was referring to when it just came to a guitar and oh, nice. production value. Yeah, yeah. I guess Jeff stuff is more uh, like the smashed up Weezer version of that. You know what I mean? Like, like it's big and heavy, but then there is there are moments like that where there's like all of a sudden there's this like orchestral section or something. You know what I mean? Or or, or whatever. It's, um, yeah, it's cool. That's what's so amazing about music, right? It's like you just can't possibly know everything out there that that you respond to, and like in terms of like the the the, the feeling that we've been talking about in this conversation, like it's like you kind of, at least for me, I've I've found myself getting stuck on the things that I know resonate for mm-hmm. me. And it's always just such a surprise when I do find something new or I listen or discover an artist that I've never heard of that makes me feel that same I'm, way. Yeah, I know oh, what you mean. I mean, that's the beauty of, of just the fact that there's just like endless amounts of music, whether it's it's underground punk rock or if it's, you know, pop sure. music. I mean, there's there's pop music out there that I think is is well, I mean, I like a lot of pop music. The artist Oliver Tree uh, who's been putting out records for the past few years now, but um, it's pretty cool. And, you know, he, he's signed to Atlantic Records, and but he's doing shit in a really unique and uh, compelling way. It's, it's, I mean, he's, like, he's a total freak. He's just, <laughs> like, so creative in how he presents his sort of visual aesthetic, but the music and the songwriting and the production that he has, it's 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 really good. So that's maybe another one to check out. It might not be your jam as much as Andy. That's Schaff. okay. I mean, I'll even fall into the, like some Lizzo and like Billie Eilish or something like that. You know, who knows? It uh, mm. depends on, on what happens when I get in the car. Mr. Shirley. We've done it. I think I will say Mr. Shirley, AKA Grammy Jack. <laughs> I'm super stoked that we got to do this. I think we found a really good flow and I, I personally got a better understanding too of like how you you operate and sort of your take on the recording process and I love that you're both a musician, punk rocker and kick-ass audio engineer and uh, one of the best dudes I know. So I appreciate you being a part of this and uh, we will see you this year wherever wherever that may be, whether it's on stage playing with Dangers or back in the studio at the Atomic Garden. Nice. Well, thanks for having me, man. It's, uh, yeah, it's been great getting to know you and your crew. Thank you.